This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Get your Bibles open. Let's get that in front of us. Revelation 19. Starting in chapter 17, God has been showing us Babylon. Of course, Babylon didn't exist in the first century when John wrote this book. It had become in the first century a code word for Rome. And beyond that, Babylon came to symbolize anything that is anti-church. That could be a corrupt municipality. It could be a reference to fallen culture in general or a decadent civilization. Um, Babylon is not just one historical kingdom, but rather it's a composite picture of many kingdoms. And from Bible times, we could include Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Nineveh. In modern times, we can include America and Canada, Britain, China, Malawi, All these are brought together under the moniker Babylon. And what makes Babylon what it is, is its its corruption, its idolatry, its immorality. What characterizes Babylon is its worldliness. Worldliness is whatever makes wickedness look normal and righteousness look strange. Worldliness is in every country. Worldliness is a threat to every Christian in every corner of the globe. Babylon is a threat to every believer. Now, chapter 18's unique contribution is to say to Christians, come out of her. Come out of her. Come out of Babylon. Come out of her. Now, why should Christians come out of Babylon? Well, because Babylon is going to be judged, which is what chapter 19 is all about. Let me read it. Revelation 19. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, all you You who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. 
Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses, and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free, slave, great, and small. Then I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, And their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. I do something a little bit different this morning. I'm just going to start with a brief, very high level view of verses 11 to 21 and then focus the bulk of our time on verses 1 to 10. Verses 11 to 21 reiterate a theme we have seen time and again throughout the book of Revelation. That's the theme of divine judgment. In these verses, it is Jesus who judges. It is Jesus who wages war and does so with perfect justice. The Christ who comes forth from heaven is the warrior Messiah foretold in the Old Testament. This is the Savior who slew the hosts of Pharaoh after parting the Red Sea for Israel to pass through. Moses at that time sang, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. This is the the battle captain who appeared to Joshua 
with his drawn sword in hand. I am the commander of the army of the Lord, Jesus declared, and Joshua worshipped him. Like a medieval knight who defends his damsel against a lurking dragon, the heavenly warrior Jesus arrives on a white stallion, wielding a sword to slay the enemies of his church. These verses show us that Jesus is not squeamish when it comes to judgment, nor is he aloof from the inflicting of God's personal wrath. Now, many things could be said to those who object to this doctrine of divine judgment. One would be simply to point out that this righteous judge has previously come as the Savior who offers to save these very sinners by shedding his own blood as a sacrifice of love on the cross. Jesus has offered free and full forgiveness at the terrible cost to himself that he bore on the cross. But if we refuse his salvation, we deserve his condemnation. New Testament scholar Robert Mounts puts it this way. He says, any view of God which eliminates judgment and his hatred of sin in the interest of an emasculated doctrine of sentimental affection finds no support in the strong and virile realism of the apocalypse. The most urgent application, I think, of these verses is that instead of arguing with the Bible's images of, of wrath and final judgment, we should instead do what John the Baptist told his hearers to do. What did he say? Flee the wrath to come by confessing our sin, gaining forgiveness at the cross of Christ. Because Jesus' offer is very simple and it's very clear. He says this, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Repentance of sin, confession of sin, turning in faith to Jesus is the path to victory. This is the plain and straightforward teaching and application of Revelation 19.11 to 21. Now, the beginning of chapter 19's tone and scene are striking when it's juxtaposed against the end of chapter 18. Let me just read a few verses to refresh your memory. What we looked at in chapter 18, the end of chapter 18. This is the judgment over Babylon. This is what we read, verse 22. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. See, everything is fading to black. It's an eerie silence. It's an unnatural silence. No cars, no lawnmowers, no children running and laughing, no music. All of the sound of life on God's planet is hushed. This is the end. Think of all the stuff we've seen in Revelation over the past months. It's been a lot of bad news. Remember chapter 16? 
with seven bowls, the plagues of festering sores and darkness, and they curse God, and there's a great battle, and there's an earthquake. Chapter 17's got a prostitute sitting on a beast. Chapter 18 is the fall of Babylon, and people are lamenting and crying. No more commerce, no more industry, no more sound. It's been unrelenting judgment until everything is done. No more television, no more computers, no more cell phones. All of it is hushed. Someone who's really good at media or film could probably depict this well. I see a kind of gray and hazy screen with just shrapnel or frames of buildings. There was that picture of the building next to the World Trade Center on 9-11 with just its frame still standing. There's dust and ashes and it's dark and you have to listen for this single violin or deep cello droning on one note. It's just giving you this this haunting feeling. And then the screen fades to black and it's quiet. And then light Colors, brilliant, vivid colors, and singing. They sing hallelujah. The silence has been shattered with the deafening roar of God's people. Hallelujah, the Lord God Almighty reigns. This is how different the fate of Babylon versus the fate of the bride is. Babylon is once clothed in splendor. It now lies in ashes while the bride is dressed in fine clothing. So in Babylon, there's no singing. There's no industry. There's no wedding celebrations. Now in the church, there's singing and shouting and all of the servants, small and great. There's a fantastic wedding about to take place. That's the transition in tone from chapter 18 to chapter 19. So let's look briefly. Chapter 19, God's judgment is cause for three things. Praise, preparation, and indebted gratitude. God's judgment on Babylon is cause for praise, preparation, and indebted gratitude. First, it's cause for praise. You got to ask the question is the response of hallelujah warranted? Is such praise actually a distorted and twisted response to God's judgments? This statement of this idea that God's judgment is grounds for praise might strike our ears as odd. But that's our problem, not the Bible's problem. It's one of many examples how our ears have been trained by our culture, not Scripture. Let me mention a few things to consider as we think about the fact that clearly in this passage, God's judgment of Babylon is grounds for praise from God's people. First, you've got to locate this hallelujah in the storyline. This jubilant praise comes at the end of human history. This is the end. 
The praise comes after the judgment. So as long as unbelievers are alive, we are to long for and pray for their salvation. We're to work to scatter the gospel seed into as many lost ears as possible. But on the last day, after history has concluded, we will see the judgment of God is right. It's true and just. And it will be cause for praise from God's people. Second, find the grounds the judgments are based on. He has, verse 2, he has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. Imagery for idolatry, corruption in idolatry, the influence of idolatry in the world. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. God loves his people. He loves his creation so much he will not tolerate anyone or anything that tears it down. Letting the guilty go free is corruption, not justice. The multitude sings hallelujah because they see that God has put everything right. This is not a crazed and unrestrained vengeance, by the way. This is a just punishment deserved by those who have corrupted the world through their varying contributions of idolatry. God's judgment in the end will be so right Once all the verdicts have been levied out, there will only be silence. No objections. One more thing we should think about when it comes to the grounds the judgments are based on. A little thought experiment to help us. If you could somehow find an atheist who has exercised perfect love and justice toward another human being, God would still be just in judging that atheist. If you could find an atheist who has exercised perfect love, perfect justice toward another human being, God would still be just in judging that atheist. When we throw around the term justice today, we typically use it to describe the way in which human beings ought to be treated. But there's an often overlooked element to justice. That's theistic justice. Giving God his due. Now we're right to draw attention to people who do not give other human beings their due. Not to give another human being, another image bearer, their due is injustice. But it is an even greater travesty not to give God his due. Theistic injustice is not giving God the obedience, submission, honor, worship, and love that is due him. And theistic injustice is grounds for judgment. So the grounds upon which God judges the world are not unfounded. When at the end of history all is laid bare, we will see that God has judged with rightness. Also, we need to keep in mind that God's judgment as grounds for praise is grounds for praise because we're celebrating relief and freedom. Notice that salvation comes through judgment. Salvation comes through judgment. Two sides of one coin. Salvation and judgment. Two sides of one coin. The multitudes sing the praise of God because his final judgment has arrived. They're they're celebrating relief and freedom. No more social ridicule for merely speaking the name of Jesus. No more getting fired because you dared to share the gospel with a co-worker. No more physical injury because we gather as a church. No more martyrs. 
Expand this out. No more death due to cancer. No more families ruined because of prideful infighting. No more headaches when you're trying to read God's word. Is that not cause for praise? We've got some chronic migraine sufferers in our midst. (laughs) Second, God's judgment is cause for preparation. Look at verses 6 through 8. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. Rapid fire questions here, class. Who is preparing the bride? Who is the bride? Everybody? The church. What is she preparing for? A wedding. Who is the church's groom? Jesus. The return of Christ is portrayed as a wedding. Now, we have to understand wedding practices in this context to get the full picture of what this is communicating to us. Wedding practices in biblical times were different from ours today. Very different from ours today. Parents arranged the betrothal of their children. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Once the terms of the marriage were agreed upon... There was an interval of varying lengths between the betrothal and the wedding. During this time, the groom would pay the dowry to the father of the bride or provide an arranged period of servitude. I can go with that too. That'll that'll work. (laughs) The wedding itself took the form of a processional in which the bride was taken from her father's house to the home of her husband. And as the wedding drew near, as this drew near, the bride prepared and adorned herself to be presented to her groom. And upon her arrival, the groom received his bride from her father and the wedding feast began a banquet that might last as long as seven days. Seven days. Yeah. William Hendrickson draws the imagery of the ancient Near East wedding practices into this gospel picture. He does so with with marvelous clarity. He says, in Christ, the bride was chosen from eternity. Throughout the entire Old Testament, the wedding was announced. Next, the Son of God assumed our flesh and blood. The betrothal took place. The price, the dowry, was paid on Calvary. And now, after an interval, which in the eyes of God is but a little while, the bridegroom returns, and it has come the wedding of the Lamb. Now, to get ready for this glorious day, we read here that the bride has made herself ready. Let's park on that. The bride has made herself ready. I have been a groom just once. I have been a groomsman a couple of times, and I have officiated dozens of weddings. Here's what I've noticed about brides. They work very hard to present themselves in maximum beauty on their wedding day. I have watched this front row seat through the premarital counseling sessions, sometimes six months out, so I get to see the transformation. (laughs) 
she will exercise to fit into a slimmer dress. She will spend a small fortune on makeup and perfume. And she will contract a small army of helpers to make sure that she gets down the aisle in flawless presentation. Yes? Don't tell me I'm the only one who's seen that. There's your picture. This corresponds to the spiritual labor that all Christians are to exert as we prepare for the coming of Jesus and our wedding. You see? Oftentimes the gospel in Christianity is looked at as a ticket you receive to get into heaven when that day comes. No, 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 no. You've got work to do. The wedding is coming. The wedding is coming. And we have a responsibility as the bride to present ourselves before the groom in maximum beauty. What does that mean? putting sin to death, ridding ourselves of these habits that are ugly and offensive to the Lord, cultivating the inward graces of faith, hope, and love, all of this to bless our groom. This is a calling that you have, Christian. You've got work to do. You've got work to do. Don't push the cruise control button. That's not going to work. You've got work to do. God's coming judgment is cause for preparation. Last, God's coming judgment is cause for indebted gratitude. Some readers might have concluded based on verse 7 that Christians must earn their acceptance with Christ by our own works and self-righteousness. That completely misses the point. Notice in verse 8, the radiant dress is given to her. It's granted to her. This exquisite gown is a gift. It's not earned. It is God through Christ who provides the bright and pure fine linen of a spotless righteousness before his throne. Simon Kistemaker writes this way. He says, the bride can prepare herself only when God provides the wedding gown for her. You got that? The bride can prepare herself only when God provides the wedding gown for her because this garment is beautiful and pure. Her own clothes are but filthy rags. But Christ cleanses and presents her to himself without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. You know, the most poignant example of this was God's calling to the prophet Hosea, who would illustrate God's abused love for Israel by falling in love with and marrying a prostitute named Gomer. Soon after the wedding, soon after Hosea and Gomer were were married, Gomer turned away from her husband and chased after other lovers, multiple lovers. And this was God's picture of his people and the sin of idolatry. Our struggles with idolatry are analogous to Gomer's struggles with adultery. And Gomer's sin plunged her in such a depraved state that she was being sold as a slave in the market. There in the market... With her exposed body, there were men bidding for her. 
One man bid 13 shekels. And then a voice was heard from the back. It was Hosea. He said 14 shekels. Another man countered with a bid of 15 shekels. And Hosea piped up again and said, 15 shekels of silver, a homer, and a lethic of barley. And it was clear at that point, no one was going to outbid Hosea. Why? After all that, why? Even though she had slept with more men than you can shake a stick at, no one was going to outbid Hosea because he wanted her back. Listen, if you have not turned in faith to the love of Jesus Christ, this episode describes your condition and the redeeming love he offers for your soul. James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way. He says, we were created for intimate fellowship with God and for freedom. But we have disgraced ourselves by unfaithfulness. First, we have flirted with and then committed adultery with this sinful world and its values. The world even bid for our soul, offering sex, money, fame, and power. But Jesus, our faithful bridegroom and lover, entered the marketplace to buy us back. He bid his own blood. There's no higher bid than that. And we became his. He reclothed us, not in the wretched rags of our old unrighteousness, but in his new robes of righteousness. And he has said to us, you must dwell as mine. You shall not belong to another. So will I also be to you. What higher love can you ever discover than the redeeming love of Jesus Christ? So what is your response to him, Ben? He purchased you in the marketplace as others were bidding on your exposed body. He purchased you. He bought you. What is your response, Ben? Like the bride who works feverishly to present herself in maximum beauty on her wedding day, have you responded to Jesus' purchase of you by working feverishly to present yourself before him in maximum beauty on the day he returns? The only way you'll ever do that is if you see the exorbitant price Jesus paid to make you his. Let's pray. And Lord, we want to see that. We want to see that. You paid the highest price possible to give us the greatest gift imaginable. Lord, we need to see that. We need to see the depths, the depravity, the ugliness of our sin. We need to see our hearts that whore after created things rather than the creator. It's not that we 
mustered up some sort of beauty within us to make you want to come towards us. No, while we were still sinners, Jesus, you died. So as we get a fresh picture of that, a clear picture of that, I pray that our response would be one of indescribable, indebted gratitude. We do that now with minds, with hearts, with mouths to the glory of Christ. Amen.